Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. And if you're watching online, glad you're joining us there and down in F, F3 as well. Uh, many of you know I, uh, I grew up in Nebraska. And when my great-grandfather settled uh, there in northeast Nebraska, he settled in a little town called Bancroft, Nebraska, which was right on the border of the Omaha Indian Reservation. And um, uh, there are 574 tribal groups in the United States. So somewhere there around the, in this country, you probably were close to a, uh, a tribal group as well. And then after I got out of seminary, I uh, moved up to north central Nebraska, right below the South Dakota border. And uh, to the east, uh, that little star clear on the bottom of the page is Butte, Nebraska. But to the, uh, to the east of us was the uh, Yankton Reservation, which was the Yankton Sioux, the uh, Nakota Sioux. Uh, to the left or to the, to the west was the Rosebud Lakota Sioux uh, Reservation. Right north uh, was the Lower uh, Brule Reservation as well, Lakota Sioux. And um, last fall, we had the privilege of meeting uh, Chris Little. Chris is a pastor uh, there in, um, on the Lower Brule Reservation and got to know Chris a little bit. And we have the privilege this morning to just greet uh, Chris and his wife Kylie and their family. Uh, they're here to, we're going to plan and discuss some things related to a, a camp this summer, this coming summer. And I'd like them to stand and if you just welcome the littles there. Come, thank you for being here, Chris and Kylie and the family. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. Really, really appreciate that. Of course, growing up in Nebraska, you also know that I have been a Nebraska football enthusiast, at least I was until there wasn't a whole lot to be enthused about related to Nebraska, although we won last night. So, um, but um, three, three games into the season, we fired our head coach. Uh, next week, we fired our defensive coordinator. It's an all-out dumpster fire going on. We're losing uh, key recruits who are looking at the thing and saying, is Nebraska football even going to be around in the next uh, few years? Wondering if it's ever going to survive. So we've got uh, troubling times in Huskerland. Now there was a man in ancient Rome, in the Roman Empire, who was thinking similarly, I think. Not about Nebraska football, but about this thing called Christianity. His name was Theophilus, and he may have been wondering if following this Jewish rabbi of, of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, was really worth it. Would Christianity even be around in the next five years? Because uh, these were troubling times. These were tough times. Persecution was setting in. Nero was the emperor of Rome at that time. It was uh, the early 60s of that part of uh, that first century. Um, Christians were even giving their life. Uh, the, the main cause of persecution really was Judaism. Uh, but things were heating up. And here's this man by the name of Theophilus who was wondering, is it going to survive? H have I really hitched my wagon to something that's going to make it? This thing called Christianity. Theophilus was a real person, and, um, but he had a real friend, a really good friend, I think, by the name of Luke, a medical doctor. And uh, Luke set out to write a massive two-volume work 
to um, encourage Theophilus, but also to, I think, uh, build his faith, boost his faith into the truthfulness of who Jesus was and this thing called the, the body of Christ, the church of the living God. Uh, we know that two-volume work as the Gospel of Luke bears his name and the Acts of the Apostles. And you combine those two, uh, Luke is, has more verses written in the New Testament than any other writer. You can combine Paul and Peter and John and James's book, and, and uh, Luke um, is, is the biggest contributor to the New Testament. Um, but what he wrote was significant to this man by the name of Theophilus. Um, we've begun a study of the Acts of the Apostles, and it's, we haven't really gotten into the text yet, but uh, we've done some background oversight, that 35,000-foot level uh, view uh, to put the book of Acts in a context. But this morning, we're going to get into the book. Not much, a little bit, but we're going to start. And we're going to start with verse 1. Verse 1 of Acts says this, The first account I composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he's referring to volume 1. Now the implication is, and now I'm going to write volume 2, which is what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Now that first account uh, was the uh, Gospel of Luke, and so if you don't mind, let's turn back to that first volume, the Gospel of Luke, just for a, a moment and um, get a feel for uh, the, the heart of Luke and what he was doing for Theophilus, who was concerned about, I think, his faith. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, and that's pretty interesting. There are many who have undertaken to compile an account. We don't know where those other accounts went. But he says in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, he says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Just a couple observations uh, from, from these verses. Luke and maybe this was just his nature. He was a medical doctor. You, you want a doctor to be thorough and, and um, very observant, and uh, Luke was that. He said he contacted eyewitnesses, uh, the faithful servants at the time. He set out to write a, um, a, a, a work that was carefully researched, he said, investigated, he said, everything carefully from the beginning. The New King James Version says, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And so he writes this chronological history very carefully, very exactly, very accurately of the things concerning Jesus Christ and the beginning of um, the ministry of the church. Uh, second of all, I want to just emphasize to whom he's writing this. He's writing it to, it says, at the very end of verse 3, to you most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know really who Theophilus was. His name means friend of God or lover of God or beloved of God. Um, 
good chance that he may have grown up in a faith, in, 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 in a family where they had learned about Jesus or followed Jesus. Uh, we don't know where maybe he was living. His, there's a little um, title attached to him, Most Excellent Theophilus, and Paul uses that phrase later in the book of Acts to refer to some Roman governors. He calls in Acts 24, Felix, Most Excellent Felix, and another Roman governor, Most Excellent Festus. So it's a it's a title of, um, of, uh, that would indicate this is an official. This is, this is someone of means. In fact, in, in that time, to write a book or even to own a book or have a copy, you have to be a person of means. Chances are, people believe Theophilus may have funded this for Luke. And he was the recipient of this. He was a man, but it also says, verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been instructed, the things you have been taught. Uh, that word, have been taught, is a Greek word, katecheo, where you get our word catechism. So Theophilus had been um, indoctrinated. He had gone through some type of catechismal training about who Jesus was, about these things. He had been taught these things, but... <clears throat> Uh, he was maybe beginning to question, is this worth it? Is it true? I mean, there, there was no 24-7 you know, cable news. There was no, you can't Google this thing. Did this stuff really happen? It was word of mouth. That, you know, and over time, it, the, is that, did that really happen? And now persecution is setting in, and you're beginning to wonder, is this true? Theophilus had been taught these things. But now Luke comes and he writes a very exact, a very uh, detailed account in a two-volume work, Acts and Luke. Um, I think maybe for a lot of Christians at that time, there was a questioning, is this true? And so... Luke writes this two-volume work, and I'm basically saying, Theophilus, you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. I've done my research. You can rest assured. I've talked with eyewitness accounts. I've studied this out from the very beginning. It is true. It is true. What they tell you about Jesus Christ is true. All that Jesus began to do and teach, volume one, the Gospel of Luke, and all that Jesus continued to do and teach, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Apostles. By the way, that's not, a, and turn there to Acts chapter 1. That's not a, a name that Luke assigned to volume 2. It was later added. I'm not sure Luke, he might have just put volume 2. We don't know what he added to that. Um, but our translations, um, and for centuries, it's been called the Acts of the Apostles, which is probably a misnomer. Because, again, verse 1 says, this first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is, now I'm writing volume 2 about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. In other words, this is not so much an account of the acts of the apostles, it's really an account of the acts of, uh, of the risen Jesus. That's how it probably should be uh, called, the acts of the risen Jesus. Luke's gospel was what the Lord Jesus did with his disciples when he was here on earth. Acts is what Jesus Christ was doing through his disciples 
and the power of the Holy Spirit, as we will see. Uh, one other thing that I think needs to be emphasized as we get into a little bit of the book of Acts, and I've already mentioned this, but Luke is writing a history, a detailed account. This is what happened. And as such, it is, um, it, it, it is not didactic literature in the sense it's like the Apostle Paul's epistles that are, I want to teach you these things. I want to teach you these, these theological truths. Luke is writing historical accounts. This is what happened. In other words, he's, it's descriptive literature and not necessarily prescriptive literature. It's describing something. He's describing the beginning of the church. He's describing the movement from Judaism into something new, as we talked about last week, this new era of the, of the, the, the new covenant blessings, this new age of new covenant messianic blessings, uh, the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And as such, the book of Luke and what we're going to, or the book of Acts and what we're going to read is transitional. It's, it's, it's writing about the transitions that took place naturally, obviously, between that Old Testament era and the New Testament era. He's describing these things. And because of that, we're going to read things in the book of Acts that are not repeatable today. He's just telling us what happened back then as we transitioned out of the old into the new. And so we have to be careful with that. It's inspired scripture. It's accurate. He is recording, though, the history of it. And he's not saying, now, what they did exactly, you do today. And as we get into the book of Acts, we'll, we'll see that. We'll draw some wonderful lessons from the book of Acts, but we have to realize as a transitional book, there are things that are unrepeatable. They, were, they took place then and only then, and they're not repeatable. Now, as we study through the book of Acts, we'll see that the, uh, the things that Jesus continued to do and teach, the, this uh, uh, acts of the risen Savior, of the risen Jesus, um, progresses as he is unfolding this historical account it is a progressive unfolding of uh, the the flow of what jesus continued to do and teach through his followers and i think that i think you can accurately say the theme for the book of acts is the triumph of the gospel the gospel triumphs now the word gospel means good news and it's good news about jesus um, so when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about this good news that Jesus came and he died for our sins. He was the sin bearer. He took the sin of the world and he, in our place, he was our substitute. He died in our place to satisfy the righteous requirements of the Father, the holy God who said payment for sin is required. And Jesus stepped from his throne of glory, and he said, I will make that payment. And in uncomprehensible love, he came to earth, became fully humanity, and he took upon himself the sin of the world. And he died in our place. And then three days later, he rose again. And he met with his followers, and he showed the nail prints in his hands and his feet to put your your fist in my side. He was alive. And he commissions his followers, now go, 
Go into the world and make disciples, make followers of, of, of mine. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bring them into the fold and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Go and make disciples. And the book of Acts is the unfolding of that, um, of that mandate to go into the world. And so you can outline the book of Acts quite simply. The first 11 verses is, is, is an introduction, as we'll, we'll see. But the second section is the witness in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world, he says. And, and the first part of that is the witness in Jerusalem. And there's this little uh, summary statement at the end of that section, in verse 4 of chapter 8, and he says, Therefore those who had been scattered, what about preaching the word? We'll see in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, a great persecution set in in Jerusalem, and the believers, the followers of Jesus, were pushed out of Jerusalem into the next phase, and the word continued to grow. The next phase is the witness in Samaria and Judea. The gospel, of, the triumph of the gospel was expanding. And again, there's a little uh, progress report. There's a little uh, summary statement in chapter 11, verse 19. So then those who were scattered... Because of the persecution occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, so the church is spreading. And the third major section is the witness to the ends of the earth, chapter 11, verse 19, through the end of the book. And then, then there's sub-themes where Paul's missionary journeys take place, his three missionary journeys, and, and so on and so forth. So you can break up the book pretty simply. Jesus said, go, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world, and that's the book of Acts. The progress of the gospel, the triumph of the gospel. Now, throughout the book of Acts, uh, what Luke also does is give, he gives us little progress reports sprinkled throughout the book. So how is it going? How is it going? And he tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, here's the first progress report. The Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Wow. Hey, good start. Then he says the next progress report in chapter 6, verse 7, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the, as the Christ, as the Messiah. Man, things are moving forward. Next progress report ends this section, chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So Luke adds these little progress reports throughout. Here's another one, chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Or chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Thanks, Luke. The gospel is triumphing. Or chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. He's keeping us up on the progress from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost part of the world. The last progress report at the end of Luke, chapter 28, of Acts, chapter 28, he writes, and he, Paul, was preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. And that's how the book ends. Now, what this structure and these progress reports tell us, or one of the things that tells us, is that these followers of Jesus Christ, they were getting it. You're going to be my disciples. Uh, go, go in the world and then make other disciples. The Great Commission. Uh, bring people into the faith. 
uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Identify them with this new entity, the church of Jesus Christ, and then teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And he says, as we'll see, you will not be without help, for I'm going to send, I'm going to go to the Father, and he's going to send you the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and you will be given power to accomplish this. And when that power comes, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. And so the book of Acts unfolds that. The empowerment of God's followers to accomplish what God has asked them to accomplish, and they understood that. They understood their purpose. The church understood why they were still here on earth and hadn't gone up to heaven yet. They were fulfilling what they had been called to do. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you come to that point where you have understood that Jesus died for my sins. There's nothing I can do to merit, to earn a spot in God's heaven. I can't be good enough to do it, but Jesus was, and he paid for all my sins. He died for me, and then he rose again. And when you realize that it's in Christ and Christ alone, and you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have been given at that point a new purpose, for a, re, a new reason for existence. You've been given a purpose to proclaim his excellencies, Peter says, in this world, to bring glory to him, to radiate that glory in this world, to be his witnesses in this world. Understanding our purpose is crucial. What could be more important then we understand our purpose for existence and we're living out that purpose. We're fulfilling the very thing that we were created to do. It's like the, the story of the very wealthy man who had an elderly mom and he wanted to do something special for his mom and he'd heard about this, this fancy parrot. It had a 4,000 word vocabulary. I mean, this thing was just incredible. It knew multiple languages. It had memorized uh, three operatic arias. I mean, this bird was incredible. Now, it had a price tag of over $100,000, but the guy was wealthy. He loved his mom. He bought the bird, sent it to his mom, and the next day he wrote, uh, he, he sent a cable to his mom, called her, says, what did you think of the bird I sent you? And his mom said, oh, thank you, son. It was delicious. Now, the bird did not fulfill, obviously, its purpose. It's a stupid story. But <clears throat> what kind of bird are we? Are we fulfilling the purpose for the reason why we exist? The exciting thing about the book of Acts is that we have this accurate, well-researched, historical account of the early church whom God empowered with his Holy Spirit to fulfill the reason why they existed. They fulfilled their purpose. And the progress of the gospel, the triumph of the gospel, as we see through the book of Acts, continues. They effectively witnessed in Jerusalem, in their Judean Samaria, to the uttermost part of the world. But let me go back again to that opening verse. There in verse 1, 
the Acts of the, uh, of the Apostles or the Acts of the Risen Savior, the first account I composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And again, the implication is, now I'm going to write to you, volume two, all that Jesus continued to do and teach. And because of that, that spiritual enablement, go to Jerusalem and wait, he'll tell us, and we'll see in the next few verses. And you're going to get power on high to accomplish your purposes. And it's all that Jesus then began to do and teach or continued to do and teach through his people. This is not so much the story of the great works of Peter and James and John and Paul. It's the story of the great acts of a risen Savior who empowers imperfect, ordinary people to do extraordinary things and fulfill their purpose and their calling. It's the acts of the risen Savior who, who spreads the good news about himself through his followers and that that good news triumphs. It triumphs in such a way that the world is turned upside down because of Jesus, the enablement of his spirit in the lives of imperfect people, ordinary people who will do extraordinary things. Now, what about us? Again, I think the, the burning question for me as I was studying this is, am I fulfilling his purpose? I think the fun thing we're going to see about the book of Acts is the encouragement we're going to get when we see these ordinary, imperfect people doing amazing things because of the enablement and the power of God to fulfill their calling, their purpose for existence. How does it look for us? What is Jesus Christ doing through me. We can read volume one, all that Jesus began to do and teach while he was with his disciples, but we get to wrestle with historical accurate account that Luke wrote about what Jesus continued to do and teach through his disciples as he enabled them with the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus Christ doing through me? How does this relate to me? So I want to just kind of put things together with a particular verse that the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians. Here it is. You know it probably well. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now in this verse, Paul is telling us the, the essence of of what the Christian life is all about. What is the essence? How can you summarize the, what the Christian life is all about? And he says that in those first few phrases. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's the essence of Christianity. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, and, and this, is the, this is where we get into the deep theological truth, but it's this idea, and we've talked about this many times, like when we went through the book of Romans, but it's this idea that what was true of Jesus became true of me. When I put my faith and trust in Christ, I was identified with Christ. I was, I was wrapped up in Christ. Colossians 3.3 says, my life was hidden in Christ Jesus, which meant that whatever was true of Jesus became true of me. He was crucified. It was as if I was crucified with him. Crucified. What, what, what do you mean? And Paul goes on to explain that old me, that old sinful self, 
was put to the cross. I've been separated from it. The old Mark Carey died the moment I trusted Christ as my Savior. I have been crucified with Christ, and he says, it's no longer I who live. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I've got a pulse yet this morning. What do you mean it's no longer I who live? Paul is saying, it's that old me, that old sinful self. And many times we've talked about this. I no longer have to do the things I once did because I'm not the person I once was. I have been resurrected up to newness of life in Christ. All things have passed away. All things have become new. I am a new creation in Christ. These are profound, foundational theological truths that are true of every one of us who know Jesus as our Savior. I am a new creation in Christ. I have, my old self has been separated. It's been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. I, I, I'm new from the inside out. The very presence of God has taken up residence in my life at the moment of faith. Do I deserve that? No. It's a gift of grace. But that's who, is, who I am. That's my new identity. I'm not a dirty, rotten, depraved sinner anymore. I do dirty, rotten, sinful things. But my core identity is that I've been raised up to newness of life in Christ. I'm different. It's no longer I who live. I like how John Stott uh, describes this in his book, The Cross of Christ. He wrote, It is inconceivable that I should continue to sin. Why so? Because I've died. I've been crucified with Christ. My old sinful life has received the condemnation it deserved. In consequence, I, the old sinful, guilty I, live, lives no longer. But Christ lives in me. It is the old I, that old sinful, rebellious, guilty I, which lives no longer. And it's the new I, the one that's been justified and free from condemnation, who now lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ lives in me. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among Gentiles, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or he said it this way in Romans 8, verse 10, and if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Christ living in me. And so I now have a brand new um, enablement within me, that power that I never had before. And that's the essence of the Christian life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Now, he goes on and says, now let me tell you the means of how to live out that life. And he says, and the life I now live in this flesh, in this body, I live by faith. In whom? I live by faith in the Son of God. I don't live by faith in my abilities. I don't live by faith in what I can accomplish. Thanks, God, for saving me. i got a home in heaven now, but I'll take it from here. You want me to love my wife? I'll figure it out. See you on the other side. You want me to uh, you know, live out uh, a life of, with the royal law of love to my neighbor? Uh, I'll see you on the other side, God, but I'll, I'll take it from here. No, Paul says, the life I now live, I live by faith. What's the means by which we live out this thing called the Christian life? It's the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit, and we walk by faith. We live it out by faith. So Paul would write another example, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Or John 15, 4, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. And if you abide in me and I in you, this person bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing apart from him. But with him, what happens? Paul writes in Galatians 5, he said, let me tell you what happens. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit takes place. But it's not me doing it. I no longer live that old self but the life I now live, I live by faith in Him. And He empowers me to do this. It's living by faith, trusting His enabling strength. It's getting up in the morning and saying, Lord, I can't live this thing called the Christian life. I can't do it. But I know You have given me Your presence. My life is hidden in Christ. You have taken up residence in my life. The Holy Spirit dwells in me at the moment of faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I've been placed in the body of Christ in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. He's, I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in my life. This body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as I, and I haven't even put my foot on the floor yet. I'm still in bed. And so as I live today, I can't do this, but you can do it through me. And so in obedient trust, I get out of bed and I'm going to trust you to empower me to live out that life. And then you go to the bathroom, you brush your teeth, and you're trusting the Lord all through this. You go to eat breakfast and you're saying, I'm going to be heading to work, but I'm going to be working with people I can't stand. I'm not saying that, guys, and gals and guys here, but the guys I can't stand already resigned and moved away. Ooh, that was the flesh. That was not the Spirit of God talking. Sorry, Don and John and Charlie. And, um, where was I? So then we, we say, I, we can't, I can't do this. I can't love those people. I don't have it in me. I have you in me. This is, this is not about what Mark Carey can do and teach. This is what God can do, what Jesus can do and teach through me. And so we, we go through our day with that conscious awareness. We live by faith, he said, in the Son of God. Now here's the wonderful thing about it, is the motivation for it. And by the way, one person put it this way, our only hope is to learn that Jesus Christ did not come just to get men out of hell into heaven. He came to get himself out of heaven into men. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there's something true about you, me, about every believer in Jesus Christ. He's in us. He has taken up residence in his life through the Holy Spirit. What's the motivation to live out this new life? He says it right at the end. The Son of God, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. No more powerful motivation to live out and believe and live out this calling than to realize no matter what I do today, even when I, before I put my foot on the floor and I've already messed up, before I begin my day, I've already had bad thoughts. But thank you, God, for loving me unconditionally. There's nothing I can do that would ever change the fact that I am eternally loved by you. I love you, Lord, in, uh, uh, as best as I can, but the thought that you love me, that's a great motivation. No more powerful assurance that Christ is working in my life than the fact that he loves me as evidenced 
by the gospel, the death and the, his resurrection for me. Um, wrote, Luke wrote this two-volume masterpiece. Volume one, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Volume two, all that Jesus continued to do and teach through his body, through his church. The last chapter of Acts, chapter 28, we'll get there in 2035, but um, the last chapter, chapter 28, if you go there and read that, it just kind of ends abruptly. Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and, and it just says he was uh, sharing Jesus Christ, teaching of the kingdom, unhindered, you know, without, without provocation. He's just, but he's there under house arrest, and boom, it's over. Because as Luke is writing this historical account, that's where it was. When he finished, well, Paul was in, under house arrest. That's where it ended. It just kind of ends there. Now, Luke could have added three words at the end of this Acts of the Risen Jesus, and those three words could have simply been to be continued, to be continued. Because Jesus is continuing to do his work through his body, the church. And whether you would want to believe this or not, if you know Jesus as your Savior, we are chapter 29. And Jesus is fulfilling his work through us as we walk by faith in what he's done for us. And we live out this calling. And we can see in our day and age the triumph of the gospel, just like the early church did 2,000 years ago. Acts 29, it's continuing. And as we study this book, I know God is going to encourage us and excite us in what he can do through us, imperfect, messed up people as we are, and yet temples of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes in our day and age. We'll see the gospel triumph. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we've been given to read study, spend time in this historically accurate book called The Acts of the Risen Jesus. And I pray that you would um, challenge us and encourage our hearts um, to believe it, to see how you want to use us as, as members of your body, that we can see more clearly what you are doing and teaching through your body, your church today, and that, Father, we would be faithful, be found faithful as good stewards as we live out chapter 29 of the acts of the risen Savior. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.